God is good, amen? Amen. Amen. He is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. And I believe that there's a, his, his presence is special when the fellowship gathers, when the church gathers and we rub shoulders and we worship him in spirit and truth. We sing our praises. You know, we're not just singing songs to this black ceiling. Our praises are spiritually going up to heaven and we're worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we experience his power and his glory and his majesty and his transforming work in our lives. Family, embrace it. Embrace it this morning. You cry out in your heart as you're taking a seat. Lord, change me, transform me, renew me. Let that be our heart's cry. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this morning worship. Father, thank you for, uh, we worship you through songs. Father, we worship you in communion. Now, Lord, we're going to worship you as we study your word. And you're going to speak to us this morning mightily as we learn from the book of James. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, Lord, anoint this time. Amen. 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 Turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of James. We are starting a new book this morning, and I am excited to go through the book of James with you. Um, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. There are 108 verses in James, and there are 58 imperatives. You know what an imperative is? An imperative is how to live out your faith how to live. This is a very practical book. We have theological books in the New Testament. That, that, that's what Hebrews is. That's what the book of Romans is. And then you have practical books. And practical books teach us how to live the Christian life. Now, it's interesting if you study church history uh, concerning the, the book of James, uh, you'll, you may discover that Martin Luther from the Protestant Reformation, he was not a big fan of this book. He called the book of James the, the epistle of straws. And I want to show to you why. Bring up um, the uh, Romans James 2 verses, Rick. This is why Martin Luther called this book the epistle of straws. Because if Paul says in Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That was a radical transforming biblical truth that changed Martin Luther's life that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But James says in his book, this is what Martin Luther didn't like, a man is justified by the works and not by faith alone. Oh no, what do we have here? Do we have a contradiction? Do we have a contradiction in the Bible? Thank you, Mr. Rick. No, we do not have a contradiction in the Bible. You see, the book of Romans as everybody knows, it's a theological book. It's a theological book. And the book of James is a practical book. So Romans is theological truth. James is practical truth. And the truth is, man is justified by faith in Christ alone. But a real faith will produce a change in your life. You see, my friend, how you live your life how you live your life in everyday living is the evidence of the faith that is in you. Is the pattern of your life a reflection of the faith on the inside? That's what James, that's, that's, it, what, that's it, what's at the heart 
of what the letter of James is getting to. Does your life, the way you live your life, does it reflect the faith that's on the inside? Does it reflect the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You put your faith in Christ, and we come to Christ, we don't have it all together, but then we begin to grow. We begin to learn. We begin to become a disciple. And that's where James, this is going to be a magnificent book that we study. I'm going to spend 10 weeks, the next, today is week one, I'm going to spend 10 weeks in the book of James. And what we're looking at is, if I, if I gave the whole book a title, I would call the book of James, A Faith That Is Real. A Faith That Is Real. Because it's loaded with these imperatives. But the title of my message this morning, I changed it from the email I sent out. And I can do that because I'm the pastor and I'm writing the sermon. But the, the title of my message this morning is Faith in the Face of Trials. Faith in the Face of Trials. And we'll be studying James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And my friends and family, the Bible says that trials and persecutions come with the faith. Jesus said in John chapter 16, you will be hated. You will suffer persecution for the gospel. And everybody in here, within the sound of my voice, you're in one of three categories. You are in one of three categories this morning. One, either you've been through a trial. Two, you're in a trial. Or three, there are trials ahead. And my question for you to think about this morning is, how will you face your trial? How will you face your trial? How will you face your difficulty? Jesus promised it will come. He promised that in John 16, it will come. The Christian life is not a bed of roses. We face difficulties just like the, the world does. But in our difficulties and in our trials, what's unique about the Christian faith is God teaches us. He teaches us truth for everyday living from our trials and tribulations. So y'all ready to get into the book of James? Amen? All right, let's do it. James chapter one, verse one. Let's look at the first verse. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? The scripture says that. He had brothers and sisters. And I've always wondered what, what was that like? What was that like to grow up in the household of Joseph and Mary and to be the brother or the sister of Jesus? Because you know, Jesus was perfect. He was the perfect, obedient child. He always obeyed mom and dad. He never did anything wrong. I could hear Joseph and Mary looking at the brothers and sisters and saying, why can't you be like Jesus? Why can't you be like why can't you be like your brother Jesus? And I imagine over a period of time, there might have been a little bit of, hmm, I'm not, I don't like Jesus. The Gospels tell us that throughout Jesus' earthly ministries that his brothers and sisters did not believe. It wasn't until after the resurrection that his brothers and sisters became believers in who Christ Jesus is. And notice it says there in verse one, he's a bond servant of God, a doulos. Literally in the original language, it's James, a slave. He's a slave servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes from 
the brother, the unbelieving brother that probably had some issues with this perfect Jesus growing up, to this brother that didn't believe throughout Jesus' earthly life till after the resurrection he becomes a believer. And now, notice James mentions nothing in here about being a brother or being a family member. Because, you know, if I was, if I was Jesus' brother, I'd be like, hey, I was his brother. But James doesn't mention that. He, he says, I'm a bondservant. And it says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So James, this is possibly, we, we believe this is either James or Galatians were the first two uh, New Testament books written. And in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that a great persecution broke out across the church and, and, and they dispersed across Asia Minor. So this is possibly James, Jesus' brother, the leader of the Jerusalem church, writing to his Jewish brethren that are spread across Asia Minor. And then he says there in verse 2, verse 2, we're going to break this one down. This is a really... There's a lot to unpack in verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, first thing we've got to do here is we've got to say, what were the trials? What are the trials? In the Greek Septuagint, the, the word this uh, translated various here is the same Hebrew word that's used for Joseph's coat of many colors. You know, the word many colors. So these various trials... They weren't specific, they were various. They were all sorts of trials that the believers were experiencing. Uh, there were difficulties in life, they were hardships, they were challenging and unpleasant situations, they were difficult people, they were physical trials, they were emotional trials, they were just difficulties the believers were now experiencing because of their faith. And notice he says there in verse two, he says, when you encounter, that's a very important phrase there. Not if you experience tribulation, but when you encounter. Difficult times will come. Again, as I opened up my message saying, you're, you're, every single one of you, including myself, we're in one of three stages. Either we've gone through a trial, we're in a trial, or we will experience a trial. And we need to be built up in our faith and ready to face the trials of life through the grace and the power of God, walking uh, with him, serving him, loving him, and, and, and strengthening our inner man and our inner life to prepare us for the battles ahead. And then he says also there, I kind of taught this verse backwards. You notice where I talked about various trials and when you encounter. And then he says, my brethren, you know, he's talking to Christians. The Christians will experience the trials and difficulties. But then he says the most mind-boggling statement of this whole verse. The most difficult part of this verse is the first four words where he says, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. In other words, what he's saying is when these things happen, don't lose your joy. Don't lose your joy. Don't lose your peace. Understand that God is sovereign. God is in control. And you have the joy of the Lord, the joy of his salvation dwelling inside of you. Now, it does not mean you won't be frustrated. It does not mean you won't be frustrated. It doesn't mean you won't be disappointed. It doesn't mean you won't be temporarily uh, beat down. But here's the deal. When you go through the storm, praise him. When you're in the heat of the battle, claim Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
Lord, I will trust in you with all my heart. I will lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways, I will acknowledge you, and you will direct my path through this storm. That's faith. That's the kind of faith we got to have. And that's the kind of faith that James, the, remember we talked about practical, you know, Romans theological, James is practical. That's the kind of practical faith that we need to have in our Christian life to survive the world we are in. How will you face your trial and your tribulations in your life? Will you curse God and walk away or will you trust him in the fire? Let's trust him in the fire, family. Let's trust him in the fire. I know people in this room within the sound of my voice, they've gone through some difficult trials over the past year and a half. Trials that I can't even imagine what it would be like to experience that trial. And I see them today standing tall and living their faith. And I'm like, whoa, that is amazing. That is amazing. Because this individual chose not to curse God, but to say, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. And I'm gonna believe you. And you, you said in your word, that Jesus said, I came to give life, life more abundantly. And I believe that you're gonna heal my child. That's faith in the midst of a trial. The Lord, I'm gonna trust you no matter what. That's the kind of faith we gotta have. Let's look at verse three. Verse three, verse three and four is, uh, this is good. This is really good family. This is what I call the purpose of trials. Let's look at verses three and four. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Why, Lord, help us. Because the question we wanna ask ourselves is why does our faith need to be tested? Why does our faith need to be tested? That's a le legitimate question that would come up in our minds. And the reason our faith needs to be tested is because it proves whether it's authentic or not. It pr testing pr uh, proves that our faith is real. The late, great Adrian Rogers, how many, how many of you guys remember Adrian Rogers? Wonderful minister, I think up in the hills of Tennessee that went to be with the Lord in the past decade. Adrian Rogers said a faith that has not been tested uh, cannot be trusted. Whoa, Lord, test my faith now. Test my faith now so, I, so that I can know that it's real. So if in the case it's not, I can get things fixed and get things right. I, w I don't want to wait till the other side to find out my faith was not authentic. I want to know now, is my faith real? The Greek word in verse 3 where it says knowing that the testing, that the Greek word for testing is uh, a testing through the furnace of fire. Another word used for this word testing is smelting. This term is used to describe how a silversmith purifies liquid silver. They pour it into a pot and they heat it to an extreme high temperature with fire. This intense heat causes the impurities and the dross to rise to the surface of the silver. And then the silversmith, what he will do is with each boiling and each temperature, he'll skim the top and he'll pour off the dross, he'll pour off the impurities. He'll do it over and over and over again till the silver is pure and perfect, okay? And the, the silversmith will know that the, li the, the uh, liquid silver is perfect by looking down into it and seeing a reflection of himself. That's testing. 
What a beautiful analogy of the Father looking down from heaven through our trials and through our tribulations as the dross and the impurities come up through testing. He skims them off the top and he looks down till he sees his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfected in our life. I'm praying, Lord, help me to endure and test me so that my faith is real and authentic. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the melting pot. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the melting pot. Let the Lord do his work. Let God do his heart surgery and bring that dross, bring those impurities to the surface because that's what grace is. Grace is causing us to grow in sanctification and let him purify us and make us pure and holy as Christ is dwelling in us. So the uh, three purposes in verses three and four, the three purposes of trial, I want to bring to your attention this process of smelting. One is it builds endurance. It builds endurance. Look at verse three. Verse three says, knowing that the testing of your faith, it says right there, it produces endurance. This phrase to produce endurance means to uh, bear up under pressure, like an athlete training, growing stronger and stronger. I think about when I went to basic training, I got to basic training, I could barely run two laps. By the end of basic training, I was cruising at two miles doing my eight laps. But, but it, it took growing, it took uh, moving forward, it, kept, it, it took practicing, running every single day to where I got my stamina up and I built my endurance and I was able to complete my two mile run and pass my PT test. So it's the picture of an athlete. Well, how, how does that look in the Christian life? How, how does uh, producing endurance, how do you relate that to the Christian life? Here's what it does. Endurance prepares you for a lifelong commitment to Christ. You're not on one day and off the next. You're not on one month and off the next. Through trials, through tribulations, through difficulties, God is teaching us and molding us and transforming us to endure to the end. To endure and to stay the course. So it builds endurance. It builds, you know, the picture of, of an athlete lifting weights. You know, first you can lift up 20 pounds, and then you guys get on the side, they add 20 more, and then you add 20 more, and they add 20 more, and then your arms go from being this big to this big. You know, it's growing. It's growing. The second purpose of trials in this passage is this. It builds maturity. It builds maturity. It says, let endurance have its perfect result and you may be perfect. Now, this is not talking about sinless perfectionism. This is not talking about coming to a place of, of, of perfect holiness. But I believe what the author is talking about, he's talking about maturity. He's talking about maturity. You coming to a maturity in your walk with the Lord. What does maturity look like? Maturity looks like uh, Christ-likeness, okay? Living like our Savior, following in the footsteps of Jesus in our everyday living. We are, as the scripture says, ambassadors for Christ who go out and we represent our Savior to the world. That's what it means to be brought to maturity, this perfect result, to, to uh, grow in godliness, to grow in godliness. You know, the Christian life can be uh, compartmentalized into three, three parts. Justification, which takes place when you get saved. You're instantly justified when you repent and believe the gospel, when you put your trust in Christ. Then there's sanctification. Sanctification is simply growing. 
It's simply growing. And in that growing process, God is wanting to build maturity. Maturity in each and every one of our lives. The third purpose of trials that I pull out of verses three and four is it builds completeness. It builds completeness. He says there at the, at the in verse four, oh yeah, there at the very end of verse four, he says, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. The idea of being complete means that there's no gaps. It means that there's no gaps. That, that God and his sovereignty Knowing you better than you know yourself, he's working on your weaknesses. He's helping you grow in those areas that you struggle. And if we're honest, I'll be the first one to raise my hand. There's areas of our life we struggle in. And God wants to help us grow in those areas of our weakness. What do you struggle with this morning? What area do you need to grow in this morning? Do you, do, you, do you struggle with prayer? Do you struggle with prayer? Maybe God is working on your heart through the situations of your life to help you to become more of a prayer warrior. Do you struggle with compassion? Do you struggle with compassion? What is God using in this life to help you grow in the area of compassion? What is he showing you in the world so that you can grow in this area of having compassion towards the people of this world? You know, we have compassion, the compassion of Christ. Um, evangelism, evangelism. Are we, do we struggle in the area of evangelism? So what is God doing in our lives to help us grow in the area of evangelism? My fam family, God wants you to be complete. He wants to build completeness in your life. And there's some areas that, that Craig is strong in and that I am weak. And there's some areas that I am strong and Craig is weak. So what do we do? We work together. God uses men to build men and women to build women and to grow into completeness. So trials and tribulations, look on the screen, they, they build endurance, they build maturity, and they build completeness. Thank you, Lord, for trials. Thank you, Lord, for tribulations. When you and I surrender to Christ in our trial, there is a mega growth. There is a mega growth that takes place in the heart and the life of the believer when they go through trial. As you go through each trial, it's like going to the gym. You get stronger and stronger in your faith and you're able to endure more. Charles Spurgeon said this, God gets his best soldiers through the highlands of affliction. God gets his best soldiers through the highlands of afflictions. Men and women that are rough and tough and ready for the fight. That's what God does through our afflictions, through our trials, through our tribulations. He's building us and he's equipping us for ministry. Let's continue, verse five. Verse five, it says, uh, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Oh man, I could park here for, for a very, very long time. The greatest need that we have 
in our hour of trial is wisdom. Is wisdom. Not only wisdom to deal with the situation, but just godly wisdom for the overall situation that we're in. And why do we need wisdom? Because there's this temptation. There, 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 there is this um, temptation to give up in our hour of trial, in our hour of difficulty. There's a temptation to give up. There's a temptation to ask God why. There's a temptation to throw in the towel and say, I'm done. So most importantly in our hour of trial is we need God's wisdom. We need to understand what the book of James is saying. And we need to understand that this is a package deal, that this is part this is part of Christianity. But I want you to notice in verse five, there's four encouragements. There's four encouragements in our prayer. As, as, as if any of you lacks wisdom, the first encouragement he says there in verse five, he says, let him ask of God. I am so thankful for that verse. I am so thankful for that phrase. Why? Because we're encouraged to ask. We're encouraged to ask. So in that hour of trial, instead of saying, you know, I, I'm not gonna question Lord, I'm not gonna say anything, I'm just gonna endure. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to ask a question and say, Lord, help me. Help me understand this, Lord. Give me wisdom. So God encourages us to ask. It says, let him ask of God. So we can ask God in our hour of trial. The second thing, he says in verse five, he says he gives to all generously. God gives generously, okay? Okay, family, in our hour trial, in our hour of difficult situation, we're encouraged to ask and we're encouraged to know that God will give to us generously. What is it he'll give to us generously? I believe he'll give us wisdom, he'll give us understanding, uh, he'll, he'll give us friends to encourage us in our hour of trial. He'll surround us with love. He'll surround us with the family. He will give generously, okay? So in your hour of trial, you're not out there by yourself. You have a loving heavenly father that's ready to send people in and shower you with love, shower you with truth to comfort you. Then he says, look here in verse five, he says the next one is, um, and without reproach. Now just a casual reading of this verse most people say, you know, yeah, you got to be without reproach before God will give you wisdom, as if the reproach is on our part. But if you study this verse, the, the reproach is not on the part of us. He says, without reproach, the, na the noun of this verse is God. So it's saying that, uh, there, what this, this phrase is saying is there's no reproach with God when it comes to giving. In other words, uh, God is not disappointed with you when you come to him over and over and over again. He is pleased when you come to him over and over again. He's not like sitting up on his throne and saying, dude, you came to me last week. I got things fixed. Why are you coming back again? You know, I fixed things for you last week, the week before, a month ago. Dude, go away for a while. That is not how God operates. He is without reproach. He encourages you to spill, pour out your heart to him, to trust him, to love him, and to come to him with every single need, every single question, 
Everything that comes to the human heart, he is well acquainted with. And you can bring it to his throne of grace. And if you need to bring it to him 10 times a day, on the 10th time, he's going to treat you just like he did on the first time. He's a loving heavenly father. And he, 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 he says, come to him. He will be, gives to all generously and without reproach. God is the one that's not disappointed when we ask. And then verse five, it ends with the fourth encouragement in our prayer. It says, it will be given to him. It will be given to him. Okay, I'll repeat that one more time. It will be given to him. God answers prayer. God answers our prayer and it will be given to him. I believe as we walk in faith and we trust in his word and we're living for him, we can trust that our God will answer and provide for us in all situations. I don't know what the answer will be. I don't know if he will give it, not give it, or tell you to hold on, but God will provide. God will provide for you in your hour of trial. Family, this is Christianity 101. This is living out a real faith in a real world. And this morning, we're looking at when our faith is tested and when we go through trials. You know, I've seen Christians, man, they, 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 they come to the Lord, they're serving him, they get blindsided by a disaster or something really bad happens and, and they fall away. And nobody ever warned them that trials and tribulations come. But we need to understand trials and tribulations do come to us as well as the world. Let's continue, verse six. Verse six says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If I, put, if I, if I was making, putting notes out to the side of verses six and eight, I would say, man, this is the key to prayer. This is the key to prayer. The key to prayer in our hour of trial is an unwavering faith an unwavering faith where we say, Lord, I am holding firmly to you. I'm holding firmly to my faith. I'm holding firmly to the word of God. And I know that once this storm passes, the sun will come out and you, Lord God Almighty, will be glorified. That's the kind of faith. It's buckling down the hatches in the storm. I, I talked about last week, I, was, I actually went on two deployments. The first one, uh, the second one was on an aircraft carrier. The first one was on the USS Concorde. Concorde is about a third of the size of an aircraft carrier. It's a small ship. We crossed the Atlantic. We went into the Mediterranean, and I will never forget. Um, it was, it was, I, I, I checked on board my ship in October of 91, and uh, they said, you're just in time. We're leaving in 10 days for deployment. I was like, okay, great. So I'd never been at sea before. And we crossed the Atlantic. We got to the Mediterranean. And I remember I went outside and there were these 20 foot swells. There were these 20 foot swells in the Mediterranean and our little ship, the USS Concord, you can look it up online, see a picture of it. USS Concord, AFS five, it, it was taking 45 degree rolls. And you know, you, 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 you smell the, the smell, the aroma of sickness <laughs> throughout the ship. And it got so bad. Then the skipper come across the PA and said, everybody get in your rack. And if you know anything about the Navy, they live in coffin, we live, in, we live and sleep in coffin racks. 
And inside of a metal coffin rack is a mattress, okay? And there's about a two or three inch gap on each side for the mattress to sit in. It's quite comfortable. But I remember I got in my coffin rack, coffin rack, (laughs) and uh, we were taking 45 degree rolls. I put the strap down and for a whole entire night out in the middle of the Mediterranean, my my little um, mattress was sliding to the right, sliding to the left, sliding to the right. And man, I was scared. I was scared. And all I could do, all I could think about that night was hold on tight. Hold on tight and hope things clear up in the morning. And thankfully they did. Thankfully they, they cleared up the next day and we survived. And that was a horrifying night. But throughout the whole entire night, I just said, I'm holding on. I'm holding on dearly. I'm doing what the skipper said. And and we made it through the storm. If you hold on through the storm with an unwavering faith, holding firmly to the word of God, holding firmly to your faith, you buckle down the hatches, you weather the storm, my friend, you will make it. You will make it. And the Lord will bring people alongside you to encourage you, a pastor, a church, a people, friends, to encourage you along the way and hold your hand through the storm. Prayers. Prayers in our hours of, in our, in our hour of difficulty. I, I came up with three of them. Three things that you can pray uh, when you're going through the trial or tribulation. Number one, Lord, please increase my faith. That's a, that's a good prayer. Lord, increase my faith. Increase my confidence. Holy Spirit, work in my heart. Produce more faith in me. Let me trust and hold firmly to my faith in you. The second question, excuse me, not question. The second prayer is we can ask the question, Lord, what is the bigger picture? What is the bigger picture you are teaching me? You know, trials and tribulations are difficult. They're challenging. But I believe as believers in Christ, there's something that we can learn about the trial and the tribulation. And so we need to ask ourselves, God, what are you teaching me? And, and be open, think about it and say, okay, what am I learning from this? What can I take forward from this trial or tribulation to minister to someone else in the future? Number three is uh, we can pray this, Lord, what am I clinging to that you want me to let go of? Sometimes God uses trials and tribulations to wean us from the world. You know, sometimes it's a trial or tribulation to teach us a lesson that you don't need to be involved in what you're doing, that what the road and the path you're going down is a path to destruction, that it's a pathway of sin. So sometimes trials and tribulations are meant to bring us back to complete devotion to him. And God says, not only in your trial and tribulation, but throughout life, throughout every day, God wants you to cling to him. He wants you to to find your joy, find your strength, find your confidence in the Lord. That is Christianity 101. That is what James is getting to here in this book as we go through it. Then let's continue verses nine and 10. As I I was looking at verses 9 and 10, uh, my little notes here, I I, I, I thought verses 9 and 10, they speak to our hearts in our hour 
of tribulation. Let's look at them. Verse 9 says, But the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. So you have the first brother of humble circumstance. Humble circumstance is someone that doesn't have a lot. Someone doesn't have a lot. Life is uh, giving them a lemon, and, and they, don't, they don't have a lot. They're, they're maybe poor. But when this person in humble circumstances that doesn't have a lot in life, when they come to Christ, they have a high position. And the word glory that's used in verses 9 and 10, that word glory there means to rejoice. So that person in poor situation, humble circumstance, he is to rejoice that now he has a heavenly position in Christ. That poor person that has nothing in the eyes of the world, he has everything. The, the, the person living on Skid Row that has Christ has more than the president of the United States that does not have Christ. He has everything. And he is to glory. He is to rejoice that he is saved, that he is born again, and that he has Christ. Because his eyes are on eternity. His eyes are not on this life. So the, the brother of humble circumstance doesn't have a life. He is to rejoice in his heavenly position in Christ. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10, man, is, is a doozy. It, it says, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. What is verse 10 telling us? Verse 10 is telling us that the rich man rejoices because if he's a true follower of Christ, he has abandoned everything to follow Christ. He has abandoned his riches. He's abandoned his wealth. He's abandoned his status in society to follow Christ. The, 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 the humble brother is brought up to this high position. The, the rich man, the rich man in the eyes of the world, he has been humili he's brought to a place of humiliation. And, and, and that is to, um, he, he's abandoned it all. He could have had all the mansions and the yachts and, and all the money, and, but he's chosen to follow Christ. And he's taken the words of Christ seriously where he says, he says I abandon it all. I, 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 give, I, I count it all as rubbish compared to following Christ. And that rich man who was wealthy in the eyes of the world now is just like that poor man they have everything. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross for all human beings, rich, poor, old, young, male, female, African, American, European, Chinese. It's all level at the cross. That's why we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. Some of us in here are probably rich and well off. Some of us probably have very little but we don't, even, we don't even measure each other by that. We don't even measure each other by wealth or, or riches or what we have or what we don't have, but we measure each other by our common bond of faith in the Lord. This speaks to the heart. It speaks to the human heart in their hour of tribulation. The brother is brought up, the rich man is brought down, and we're all on the same playing field. Continue in verse 10. He finishes up, he says, um, because like the flowering grass, 
he will pass away. I don't think I put that, I don't think I put that in the slide, but in verse 10, there's a second half of verse 10, you'll see it in your Bibles. I made a mistake on the slide, but it says, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. Verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of his appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. There's a crystal clear warning in scripture, family, to avoid the pitfall of pursuing riches of this world over the riches of God. If you've got the riches of God, you've got everything the riches of this world will be pulled from our cold, dead hands one day. But the richness of God's blessing will carry us from now into eternity. Christ is everything. Christ is what lasts. And that's what James is getting to in this book. That if you have Christ, you have everything. He's given you everything. Now you turn around and you give him your life. And, you know, I believe in being financially blessed and the Lord has taken care of us for 25 years financially and we, we trust him and we thank him for what he's given us, but we never elevate um, our wealth or we never use our wealth as a status of God's blessing. We know as we give to the Lord financially, he will take care of us in all situations, and we pursue him first. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all the other things will be added. Let's wrap it up, verse 12. Verse 12 of this passage on trials and tribulations. He says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. You know, that word persevere under trial is, so I've got one of my favorite phrases, is, is staying the course not being moved, but in our trial, we need to persevere. We need to push through. Again, we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to throw in, throw, throw, throw in the rag and, and give up, but we got to persevere. We've got to stay the course, even through our difficult times that we experience in this life. For once he has been approved, verse 12, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Finally, closing thoughts from our teaching this morning, according to verse 12. Finally, in our trials, in our pain, um, in our, our difficult situations, put your eyes on Christ. Put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how James opens up this letter, uh, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. In your trial, in your tribulation, Whenever it does come, he will cover you. He will cover you with his wings. He will walk with you. The Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you in the fire, in the trial, in the tribulation. Trust that. Believe that because that's what his word says. He is with us. He is the one that keeps me from throwing in the towel. He's the one that undergirds me and encourages me and pushes me forward. In our trial, in our pain, in our difficult situations, he will see you through. He will see you through. And I love verse 12 because uh, it says, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We look at the Christian life as a race. 
with a beginning and an end. And one day, you will cross that finish line. And guess what's awaiting you at the finish line? I mean, a crown. Ultimately, it's coming face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I don't know how enthralled, we'll, I don't know how enthralled we will be with this crown. But it says you will receive a crown once you cross that finish line and you enter into glory. And this is this promise of persevering through trials, looking at the end of the race where Jesus is awaiting you in glory, where he's going to give you the crown of life. And it says, as promised to what? To those who love him. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, and strength? That's what it comes down to. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? And when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, he grows you in the area of practical Christian living. Family, endure the trial. Endure the tribulation. And if you're going through one, let somebody know. Let another brother or sister know what you're going through. Don't bottle it up on the inside and let nobody else know. Let your brothers and sisters in Christ know so that we can come alongside you and help you. And a lot of times that's how the Holy Spirit works within the body is he uses one Christian to minister to another. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our study this morning in James chapter 1. Father, as we've looked at trials and tribulations, Lord, I pray, Father, that we are equipped today to understand what trials and tribulations are. And Lord, help us to have a biblical understanding of them. And Father, give us the faith to stay the course and through our trials and through our tribulations. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen.